We are in the midst of a series of conversations called Praying the Psalms. And uh, one, one student of the Bible uh, named Eugene Peterson has a book uh, about the Psalms. He has several, actually. He's written a lot about the Psalms that have provided some inspiration for us as we've thought through, okay, when, it, when we want to talk about praying the Psalms, what kind of things that should we talk about? And as I was looking through one of his books, I came to a topic that um, caught my eye. And immediately, I, th- I thought, oh, uh, we, we've got to talk about that. We cannot not talk about that. I mean, it was provocative. It's the kind of thing that you see, you go, ooh. And the topic uh, that I was looking at was called Praying Our Hate. Ooh. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, how many times do we talk about hate in church? Um, well, not not very many, I don't think. Hate is a hate is a provocative word, and I I began to wonder. Okay, why why am I so uh, um, I don't know uh, alerted by by this topic, this title, praying our hate? Why do I feel like we have to talk about that at a, a worship gathering? And I think I think for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, culturally, I think hate is is kind of taboo to use the language of hate. Um, hate is, it's a bad word. It's a four-letter word, if you will, literally. It has four letters, H-A-T-E. And it's also a, a bad word. I grew up hearing my mom say, you shouldn't hate anybody but the devil. Right? And I, you know, I, maybe your mom's told you that too. Maybe not. Apparently not. That just told me. Uh, but I, I think that sentiment about not hating uh, is part of our cultural context as well. Hate is the language of bigotry in, in a culture where the key words of the day are, are tolerance and acceptance. I mean, think about it. Culturally, uh, broadly speaking, it's completely unacceptable to hate people because they're a different race or a different sexual orientation or a different religious persuasion. And quite frankly, I think that's a pretty good idea. I think that kind of comes from the image of God that's wired into us. Um, really, the only thing it's, it's okay to hate is people who hate other people. We're, we're intolerant of intolerance. We hate those who hate. Now, the flip side of that culturally is that, is that why hate is so provocative because while it's frowned upon, while it's, while it's taboo, while it's not cool culturally, all of us have experienced hate. All of us feel hate in some form or fashion. All of us know how raw and intense and visceral it is to hate. And all of us know that there, there are certain things, even culturally, that I would perceive it's okay to hate, like America's enemies, uh, terrorists like, uh, like Al-Qaeda or Saddam Hussein or, or child molesters or uh, or CEOs who are dishonest and swindle and embezzle money, or religious people who blow stuff up. I mean, culturally, it's okay to hate those people. And this, this hatred is not whimsical. It's not immature. It's based in the fact that those people, those groups, have done ridiculously wrong things. 
They, they have violated people. They have betrayed trust and confidence. They've, they've bombed our buildings and killed our loved ones. They've oppressed weak and innocent people. They've taken advantage of vulnerable children. They've made out with millions of dollars at the expense of millions of people. What they've done is wrong. And we severely dislike them for that. A couple of weeks ago, Major Nadal Hassan opened fire on dozens of his fellow soldiers at Fort Hood in Colleen, Texas, not too far from here. Thirteen people were killed and dozens more were injured. Why would he do something like that? What would lead Hassan to do something like that? I wonder if part of it was not that he was struggling with hatred himself. Those who worked with him and knew him uh, would say that he was vehemently opposed to the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. And reports suggest that he reached his breaking point after he discovered he was going to be deployed to work in Afghanistan. The very war that he hated. And it served as a snapping point of sorts for him. Sounds like Hassan struggled with a little bit of hatred. And that hatred was projected toward innocent soldiers and civilians. And I'm sure Hassan isn't the only one who's been struggling with hatred in the last couple of weeks. I can think of a lot of uh, the families of victims and victims themselves who are still alive, who are probably struggling with hatred too. Uh, Because what Hassan did was wrong. It was wrong to do such a thing to people's loved ones. And it's, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard not to hate people who do things like that to our loved ones. As I've thought about this topic, hate, you know, all of you thought, you know, we came to hear about grace and mercy, and here we are talking about hate. Uh, this is weighty stuff. I mean, this gets right down to it. As I've thought about it, I've, I've discovered some hate in my own heart. And this is particular to my vocation as a church planner, I guess. And some of the reactionary rumblings that are in me, because I found hatred in my heart for the religious institution, the Christian religious institution, particularly churches that I perceive to, um, to be filled with a lot of nominal Christian people who, who are a part of a country club of sorts. And they go to a service, they, relie- they receive a religious good, and they go home and their lives are otherwise unchanged. Uh, I, I, I can't stand thinking about church as being... Who preaches the best sermon? And, and who has the best worship band? And, and who has the sexiest website and marketing approach to the city? I mean, th- these churches spend hundreds of millions of dollars building buildings when there are people in poverty who are starving for food and for housing just a mile away. Makes me mad. Whether it's right or wrong, I'm... I just I wish some of them would just stop pretending and stop playing at church. It would it would certainly make my life a lot easier as I try to connect to disconnected people who have perceptions of church that are based on those kind of stereotypes about Christians. And it is certainly founded in reality a little bit. Right or wrong, I found some hate in my heart um, this week. I hate it. It, it nauseates me. 
And from from my vantage point, sometimes I think people like that are enemies to the cause of Christ rather than a help to it. What about you? What hate is hanging out in your heart? I would like to take a minute to create what we'll call a relational ledger. And we'll, we'll use this a little bit more throughout the gathering. Um, but there's a, this is kind of like a, it's an accounting form of sorts. And there's one long column for all of you accountants. You're like, yeah, I can do this. Uh, there's one long column called item. And I'd like for you to put the name of the person or the group that you experience hatred toward in that, in that column. Um, and then there's another column called debit. And it, you could spill over into the credit column. But use that debit column to, uh, to talk about the offense. Uh, actually, to, to talk about the amount owed. In that, we're going to do two columns because of this sheet. The first two I want you to put in that item column the person or group, and the offense that they've committed. And then in the debit category, put the amount you feel like they owe. What, what do they deserve for having done this? Who is it? What did they do? And what do you feel like they owe? Now, let me, let me clarify. Nobody's going to see this piece of paper. Now, if you're, if you're feeling kind of weird about writing that down on, on, on paper um, because somebody's going to make you come up and stand behind a microphone and read, this is who I hate, uh, we're not going to do that. So don't... Don't worry about that at all. Uh, perhaps some of you are thinking, well, hate is such a strong word. Um, I, I'm not sure I really hate anyone. Maybe you'd prefer the words of Michael Scott instead. I don't hate them. I just don't like them at all. And they're terrible. <laughs> Dictionary.com defines hate this way. To dislike intensely or passionately to feel extreme aversion for or extreme hostility toward. What, what person or group do you dislike with a passion? To whom do you feel extreme hostility? Just spend a couple of minutes. Um, Claudia, if you could turn on a little bit of hate music in the back, I mean, uh, music in the background. And let's just reflect and write down for a minute. Of you are still writing vociferously. Uh, you'll have time to to uh, write more if you need to uh, in the uh, a little later on. But if you did write anything down for now, um, then Psalm 137. It's for you. Um, let's let's stand up and read this psalm together. By the rivers of Babylon, we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. 
Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy are those who repay you according to what you have done to us. Happy are those who seize your infants and dash them against the rocks. Have a seat. You can turn in your paperback to 426 and 427 to see Psalm 137. The psalmist begins in this psalm by reminiscing about a very painful memory in the life of Israel, their captivity and um, exile to a foreign land. In the late 7th century B.C., early 6th century, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylonia. He came to, um, to Israel. He sacked the land. He brought armies of people and killed and slaughtered uh, many, many Israelites. They, they tore down and destroyed the wall that had fortified Jerusalem. And they went to the most sacred space in Jerusalem and sacked the temple, took all, all the gold in it for their own purposes and set it on fire. This, this, this symbol of God's promises to His people. And they totally destroyed it. And then, as a sign of His power and sovereignty, He took a remnant back with Him all the way to Babylon, uh, east through the desert, uh, just to show people, you know what, this is what happens when you cross Me. And those people had to live in His land. They lived in His land for 70 years until He was conquered and they were given permission to go back to their land. This psalmist claims to be one of those people or at least to share in the memory of those people. The psalmist was a part of that surviving group, and he was a musician who was mocked by his captors in Babylon. They would say, sing us one of those pretty songs about Jerusalem. And the one that has the verses in it about how big the walls are, and how strong they're fortified, and how holy the temple is. Sing us one of those songs. Why don't you? Because it is so great. Uh, nobody could overcome it, right? And he says, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that humiliation. I'll never forget what they did to me. And then comes one of the most shocking sections of all of Scripture. The psalmist mentions some, uh, some Israelite enemies, uh, the Edomites, who are southeast of Israel. And uh, the Edomites would have had uh, particular interest in in the people of Israel being overcome by Nebuchadnezzar because they had their own little spats with Israel. And they shouted, tear it down, bring it on down, cart them out of here. There will be more land, more fame, more wealth for us. And Israel wants Edom to have what's coming to it. And then come the Beatitudes of Psalm 137. Um, I guess I could guess why they didn't make them into Jesus' Beatitudes. Uh, blessed are those who get revenge. Blessed are those who kill our enemies' newborn babies. That's just that's raw hatred. That is that is intense. That that's about as uh, as graphic and vivid as you could get. Did this last stanza surprise you as you were reading it? Did you kind of wonder, I don't know if I'm comfortable saying that out loud, and it's in the Bible. Uh, is, that an, is that an accident? Did the psalmist 
overlooked that part when he was editing the final copy of the Psalms. What's going on there? Well, I think as you read through the Psalms, you find that this isn't the only instance of hate language. It's not the only instance of, of anger toward one's enemies. In fact, the Psalms are riddled with it. They're all through the Psalms. Listen to these curses upon the enemy in the book of Psalms. Psalm 53, God will scatter the bones of the ungodly. Psalm 58, God will break the teeth in their mouths. Psalm 69, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. My personal favorite, Psalm 139, the uh, presence of God psalm, you're with me everywhere I go. Well, here's a line from that psalm. If only you, God, would slay the wicked, I have nothing but hatred for them. Or another translation, I hate them with perfect hatred. Well, I mean, that's, that's raw. I mean, that, I don't know. I mean, that's, obviously that's a human talking to God, and this is, this is, this is honest, but I, I don't know. Not, not even God, though, is excluded from hate language in the Psalms. Um, listen to this in Psalm 45. God, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Okay, we can, we can do that. You hate the sin, not the sinner, until you get to chapter 5, Psalm 5. God hates all who do wrong. Psalm 11, God's soul hates the wicked and those who do violence. How, how are we supposed to make sense of this stuff? I don't know about you, I grew up hearing about the love of God, right? And the grace of God. And here we have this hate language that's, that's rampant in the Psalms. The most obvious way to read this language in the Psalms to me is as permission to express our hate to God in prayer. Rather than suppressing our hatred, we need to express it to God. Think about it. Most hatred, unless it's neurotic, is motivated by injustice and wrongdoing. We hate because somebody's hurt us or somebody we love. We hate because we care, because we're sensitive Hate is certainly dangerous. It can lead to violence and evil and aggression that's not good. But at a base level, don't most of us hate because we believe in justice? We believe in a standard of right and wrong? I think this psalm suggests that we share those feelings with God rather than expressing them in some other unhealthy way. Walter Brueggemann is a student of the psalms. And he says, it is a profound act of faith to entrust one's most precious hatreds to God, knowing they'll be taken seriously. It takes a lot of faith to share your hatred with God. None of this is to say that Psalm 137 invites us to stay stuck in our hate or, or that we have this license just to hate people all the time, forever and ever. I don't, I don't hear that out of Psalms or out of the greater story of Scripture. But at the very least, that, that we can be real with God. That we can share our hatred with God. So I'd like to take a moment just to take some of the hatred that we reflected upon earlier and express it to God like the psalmist did in 137. And Ryan is going to help facilitate that. We'd like to take a moment to let you rewrite Psalm 137 in your own words. 
And uh, if I could perhaps give you uh, a little hint to help you get started here. Uh, Psalm 137 kind of has three moments. Uh, The first moment just describes this really low moment. He's describing, remember when, when they were in the foreign land and they were asking him to sing. Like, so, so you might, as you look back on your list of hatred, you might start by just describing the worst moment that, that one of those hatred pieces brought to your life. Does that make sense? The second part in the psalm uh, that I see is he kind of states what's wrong with that. Like here we are in this foreign land and they're asking us to sing. This was the worst moment. And here's what's wrong with that. We were in a foreign land. They were asking us uh, to, to sing about something that was ridiculous. So, so you might start with recalling just the worst moment. And then you might elaborate a little bit on why was that moment so wrong? What was just, what was messed up about it? And then finish describing the cost um, or what you might like to see happen. And again, this is an exercise and a way to just express our hatred to God, to express how we feel to God. He's big enough to handle it. So take a few moments to uh, write your own Psalm 137. Would you add anything to that, Charles? Okay. All right, well, that's the end of my gathering, or end of the gathering. How you guys feel? Pretty good, huh? Yeah, it kind of feels weird. If we were to stop the gathering at that point, you know, I kind of feel like, um, you know, go and be blessed in your hatred. Um, There's something that doesn't seem quite right about that. Um, Certainly, we should share our our darkest emotions with God in prayer. That's what we're inviting you to do. And, and, And hopefully, at least this is a catalyst for you to explore more deeply some of the stuff that you've written down already because that that stuff that that's at the the deepest part of who you are and um, it deserves to be shared with God you'll be better for having shared it with God Um, as I reflect though on the broader story of God um, I can I'm convinced that we can't stop just at expressing our hatred to God we can't stop there Uh, because Israel's father Abraham was told by God in Genesis 12 that he was going to be an agent of blessing to the entire world, not an agent of curse and hatred. Isaiah described that Israel would be a light to the nations, not that Israel would just knock out the lights of the nation. Even the God of the Psalms is a God of love and compassion. Psalm 86 says, You are forgiving and good, God. You're abounding in love to all who call you. And this is written by a psalmist who knows what it means to be at odds with God and to have sinned against God and to, to be an object of God's wrath. But even here, God seeks to love and show compassion toward those who wrong Him. Consider Jesus, the one whose life and teaching makes us distinctly Christian, the one who we believe to be the full embodiment of God in human form. Jesus prayed the Psalms. Certainly he knew about this psalm. Certainly he prayed this psalm too. But, but I think too about Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 45. I'm going to read those words. You're welcome to follow along if you would like. Page 662. 
Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus was aware of Psalm 137, and yet he says something like this, love, love your enemies, don't hate them. In, in Matthew, I don't think he's trivializing, because he knows Psalm 137. I don't think he's trivializing that we feel hate toward other people. I don't think he's saying, oh, we changed our mind. It's really, just, just, don't, just don't worry about it. Just tell your enemies, we love you, it's okay, don't worry about it. Or, in the Old Testament, we hated people. In the New Testament now, we love people. I don't think he's saying that either. I think Jesus is saying, don't let your hatred have the last word. There is a season of life to express your hatred to God, but don't stay stuck in it. Let your hate be the catalyst of love and compassion toward the people you have anger toward and hatred toward. Let let your let your love be a catalyst for or let your hatred be a catalyst for love rather than for violence and aggression. And I think we see this confirmed, this idea about letting love have the last word. It's confirmed by what happens in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because at the cross, where Jesus was killed, God absorbed all the justified hatred and wrath that He had for our wickedness. He absorbed all of that within Himself. And as a result, anyone in the world, our enemies included, Saddam Hussein included, Al-Qaeda included, anyone who trusts God's work through Jesus experiences His love and friendship rather than hatred and hostility. God senses, feels hatred, but hatred and wrath do not have the last word for God. God's love has the last word. Uh, I was reminded as I thought about this stuff of, of a book that I heard about in grad school by a woman named Renee Alston. She wrote a book called Stumbling Toward Faith. And uh, th- this is really raw. I just want to warn you, just brace yourself, because this is some of the most horrific stuff I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, but I, I think it's to the point of letting love have the last word. This is what she writes on the first page of her book. I grew up in an abusive household. Much of my abuse was spiritual. And when I say spiritual, I don't mean new age, esoteric, random mumblings from half-wicked hippie parents. I don't mean that I grew up thinking all the wrong ideas about religion or what it means to be saved because I was given too much freedom or too many options. I don't mean that my father protested the phrase under God in the Pledge of Allegiance or told me there was more than one way to heaven. I mean that my father raped me while reciting the Lord's Prayer. I mean that my father molested me while singing Christian hymns. I mean that there was one way that I was literally under God and that I could never escape my sinfulness, never. My father corrupted nearly every single thing in my deepest moments of belief I see that God created for good or for righteousness. He did it slyly, Without my even realizing, he did it deliberately without regret. He fully convinced me that God was on his side and that I was bad 
that I was lucky to be loved by God, by Him, by anyone, and that I was to blame for things no child, nobody should ever be blamed for. My dad told me that if the sun didn't come out in the morning, it was because it didn't want to look at my ugly face. It's not hard to see where hatred could emerge from those kinds of experiences. She goes on to describe the way that she hated herself because of that. The way that she hated her father because of that. And the way that she hated God because of that and struggled to even believe that God was real. But Renee's story does not stop with that hatred because Renee made a decision to accept the love of God, to open her heart to the love of other people, to let love have the last word. And slowly but surely, she met the, the real God, not the caricatured version of her childhood. She met the love and mercy of God, and that love enabled her to deal with her hatred toward other people. It's the reason that she even wrote anything like this. She wrote this because her hatred catalyzed her love for anyone and everyone who could ever be helped or blessed by her sharing her story. To know that hatred doesn't have to have the last word. Think the story of Jesus, the story of God, Renee, their story confronts us with a choice. We can either let our hatred fester into bitterness and aggression and violence and, and other evil things. Or, or we can express that hatred to God. We can express our deepest emotions to God and let Him help us work through them so that we can seek to love. Jesus' answer, His choice is clear. Renee's choice is clear. And that is let love have the last word. At the end of the day, that's how we deal with our hate. After we share it with God, we learn to love. We let love have the last word because that's what God did.